Amen. Good morning. What a great service we've had so far. It's already 10.05. Tony, what time do the Tidewater people usually start? Not like when they're going to start today? Okay. We'll try to get done by then. When I was, uh, when I was a kid, the Army had a slogan, we get more done before breakfast than most people get done all day. And uh, they realized that wasn't a particularly motivating uh, recruiting poster for teenage boys. So they switched up pretty quickly. Um, but we're going to get a lot done today. I'll try to, try to move quickly. But, um, you know, last, uh, last, last Sunday we had, uh, or we didn't, but the women had Women's Day. And I uh, hear that was great. But the men uh, met here in the evening and we, we looked at uh, John chapter 5, the first uh, 18 verses. Tony gave us a... A great lesson about the healing at the pool, right, of the lame man. He'd been lame 38 years. And, and that great question from Jesus of, do you want to get well? Right? And Tony challenged us on uh, whether or not we wanted to get well. And it was a great uh, meditation for, for all of the men. We're going to continue in John chapter 5 today. And this healing that, 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 that Jesus did, it wasn't just your regular run-of-the-mill mill healing. It was, it was done on the Sabbath. If you know your Gospels, Jesus had a habit of testing people on the Sabbath. And uh, he, he gets himself into a little bit of trouble here. In the rest of chapter 5, we're essentially going to see a trial basically develop. You know, Jesus is, is kind of put on the defensive by the Jewish leaders who are upset by the fact that he has done this healing on the Sabbath. And it's, it's a great, uh, great study of the rest of the chapter. We'll look at some of it today and I presume the rest uh, next week. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 16, back up just a little bit into what we did last week so as to kind of propel me uh, into the lesson here. But I'm just going to read in, in John 5:16. if you'd like to follow along with me. It says, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son does also. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. 
Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Amen. We can stop there. <clears throat> you know, this, is a, this is a fantastic passage when you read it of Jesus in, 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 this, in, this, in this setting of sort of defending what he's been doing. He really lays, he lays out our theology for us. He lays out who he is. He lays out his relationship to God. He lays out why that is important for us. And he lays out what we should, we should be doing about it. Right? I mean, this is kind of his first public testimony. He, throughout the book of John, he's been talking to individuals kind of one-on-one. And they're getting these sort of hints of who, who he is and what he's, what he's all about. And he, he lays it all out for us. And he really just lays out our theology. He even hints at the resurrection, which of course crystallizes our, our theology when he says that that God will, will show him even greater things than these so that you will be amazed. So our, our title today for the lesson is Life and Doctrine. You know, we, we, we take that, obviously, from 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we, 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 we encourage one another and admonish each other with it, and we, we say, you know, it's not just about having the right doctrine, but you have to have the right life. You're, you're, the way you live needs to match up with what you say you believe. And when we, when we talk to people who are... Seeking to become Christians, we, we encourage them in the same way, right? So point one, there's only two, but they're long. It says, who is this Jesus? That's point one. Who is Jesus? In other words, what is our doctrine? And as I said, throughout the book of John, we're getting these glimpses of who Jesus is. And people are starting to figure him out. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 41, Andrew, after spending some time with Jesus, he goes and gets his brother Simon, he says, we have found the Messiah. He's getting this glimpse of who Jesus is, and the word Messiah and, it, and its Greek counterpart, Christ, it just means the anointed one, right? And there were a lot of anointed ones throughout the Old Testament. David was anointed. The priests were anointed. And, and biblical prophecy talked about this coming anointed one, the Messiah, who would lead, who would lead the people of Israel into a, a new era of, of glory, you know, Similar to, but, but even far greater than what they had had under, under the Davidic uh, reign. <clears throat> and, and at this time in, in Judean history, there would have been a lot of messianic fervor. Indeed, a lot of men were rising up and claiming to, the, to be the Messiah. And they were leading these revolts. And of course, they were all being put down. We don't know them today because their followings didn't last. Because they, they weren't the Messiah, right? You know, in, in verse 49 of chapter 1 of John, Jesus meets Nathaniel and has this interaction with him. And, and Nathaniel's amazing. He says, Rabbi, which means teacher. He says, you are the son of God. He's starting to get an idea of who this Jesus is. This, this, this doctrine starts to form. In, in chapter 3, Jesus interacts with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, again, calls him teacher. We know you are a teacher who comes from God. Of course, the woman at the well in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, after some Heavy hints that Jesus drops for her, she figures out that he is indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the one that was prophesied about. And indeed, Jesus is the Christ and he is the Messiah. But interestingly, if you read your New Testament carefully, you won't find Jesus very often referring to himself as the Messiah or the Christ for that matter. You know, people call him that and, and in, the, in, the, in the letters that follow the, the Gospels the, the writers refer to him as the Christ and the Messiah and he is the Messiah 
But so often Jesus refers to himself by a different title, so to speak. And, and we see it in verse 27 of our text today. He says, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. That's what Jesus so often refers to himself as. When, 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 when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah of God in Luke 9. Jesus is having this conversation. Who do, people, who do you say that I am? He says, you are God's Messiah. And Jesus takes a moment to encourage them not to share that with anyone. But then he goes on to say, the Son of Man. He doesn't say the Messiah. He says, he says the Son of Man must be rejected and killed and raised again on the third day. In, in uh, Luke 22, when Jesus is indeed on trial, um, the, the, the chief priest, they ask him point blank in verse 67 of Luke 22, if you are the Messiah, then tell us. And Jesus answers, well, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if, I asked, and if I asked you, you wouldn't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. I think it's important as we, as we flesh out our doctrine. What do I believe? What do I know about Jesus? What is important about Jesus? Maybe we should take a minute and figure out this Son of Man thing. We may not be able to articulate exactly what it means to us, but you can bet that the Jews that he was talking to in this setting, they knew exactly what he was referring to. He was referring to a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. And, and because Chris loves the Old Testament, why don't we turn over there to it? <clears throat> Daniel chapter 7. You know, Daniel was a, a, a gifted man of God and he had the, the ability to interpret dreams. And his, his very life was saved by his ability to, 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 to uh, interpret dreams. But in chapter 7 of Daniel, he starts having his own dreams. They're prophetic dreams. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but it starts off in verse 1. Where he's, he's having this vision of these terrible, perverse-looking beasts. One looked like a lion, one looked like a leopard, one looked like a bear. The fourth one didn't even look like anything that he could describe. It was just awful and, and horrific. And they were trampling the earth and doing damage. And, of course, uh, we know that, that these are representations of kingdoms of the earth, right? And we can look at history and we can look at... The setting of Daniel's life, and we can even look at our own life and see men acting like beasts, destroying everything around them. That's, that's what humanity does when it's not in line with God, and, and that's what Daniel was seeing. But in the midst of this horror of the vision, in verse 9, he says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is undoubtedly and unquestionably a reference to Yahweh, God. His clothing was white as snow, his, the hair of his head was white like wool, his throne was flaming with fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousand stood before him. That's a figurative way of saying everyone was there. Right? And the court was seated and the books were open. Interesting, in John 5, where we started today, we saw sort of a trial setting. And Jesus is referencing a, a prophecy about a court being seated. And it goes on in verse 11. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, <clears throat> but were allowed to live for a period of time. And in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Hallelujah. Hey, amen. That's right, hallelujah. Um, uh, a son of man. 
What does this mean? It just literally means a man, right? The word in Hebrew is ben adad. Ben meaning ben or ben adam. And ben means son, adam, adam. Just man. It's like, who is this? In this midst of this vision, you see, you see these horrible beasts. You see, you see this, this brilliant looking ancient of days, right? Supernatural. The, the, the court was seated. And then this just, just some guy approaches is essentially what Daniel's saying. Just some man shows up. And what does he do? It says he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now, if you're a, a good Jew, you're like, well, no, no man, no mere man approaches the ancient of days. No mere man gets led into the presence of God, right? He, 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 Mount Sinai, the Holy of Holies. This is, this is not, this is, there's something special about this mere man. And it says in verse 14, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And you compare that to what Jesus is saying about himself in John chapter 5. In Daniel 7, it says that this son of man was given authority, glory, sovereign power. And Jesus says that all authority to judge has been given to me. John chapter 5. There's a parallel there, right? It says in Daniel 7 that he is to be worshipped. All nations will worship him. And Jesus says in John chapter 5, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. You are to honor me the way you honor the Father. This is, this is what we believe about Jesus. You know, this is our doctrine. He, he is a teacher. But he's no mere teacher. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. But he's saying to these Jews there and to the people that, that he's been interacting with throughout the gospel, just in case maybe you have a, a narrow view of what the Christ is, let me expand on this a little bit. I'm not just a king. I'm not just a priest. I'm the son of man, and I am indeed to be worshipped. And this is, this is our doctrine. This is what we cling to as Christians. And I, I think about... We had Bible talk last night, and a question came up. You know, what what do what do people in today's world typically believe about Jesus? And we had a great discussion about it. But whether you're thinking about what people believe today or what people have believed throughout history, it's interesting to to consider because you think about just take a couple of religions: Judaism and Islam. These are people. Some of them are incredibly devout, righteous. More so than us, to our shame in some cases. And they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Just like, just like we do. But if you believe John chapter 7, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 7, and if you believe John chapter 5, you have to imagine that on that final day when the books are opened, and the God-fearing Jew and the God-fearing Muslim approaches to receive his judgment from God... This problem is going to be that God's not the one judging him. Jesus is the one he's going to have to face. Jesus is the one that has been entrusted with the judgment. Jesus is the one with the authority to judge. And he is the one that we need to honor if we want to pass from death to life, as he's telling us here in John chapter 5. This is our doctrine. This is what we believe. But the tricky part is... <clears throat> How do we believe? You know, uh, what would be awesome is if our passage today had ended in verse 24 after Jesus 
lays out who he is and lays out how he is important and lays out how he has the authority to judge and how he needs to be worshipped. And he goes into verse 24 and says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will, will not be judged, but has crossed from death to life. And I just want to say, Amen. I believe that. I believe. See you next Sunday. That's, that, that's, that's who we are in our Christian culture. I believe in all's well with the world, right? But, but that's not what Jesus does. And our second point today is how do we believe or, or life, right? We're talking about life and doctrine. If, if you're looking at an NIV, verses 24 through 27 constitute a paragraph. Verse 28 through 30 constitute a paragraph right after that. And in the second of those two paragraphs, Jesus sort of restates the first paragraph, but with a twist. Right? In the first paragraph, starting in verse 24, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And then down in verse 28, he flips it. And he says, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. So he's, again, the, the grave thing, the dead. He says, and those who believe, that's not what it says, is it? It says, those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. The first paragraph, come out of the grave and believe. The second paragraph, come out of the grave and it's those who have done good will cross over into eternal life. And what we, have to, you know, what we have to really get our heads right about once and for all is that our mental assertion to an idea that we call belief is not what the Bible writers were referring to when they talked about a belief. Belief means something. Belief shows up in a tangible way. And Jeff preached two weeks ago. It's a great sermon. I still from from bystander to believer. I thought that was an awesome lesson, and he, and he talked about this, and he did a great job, and he talked about uh, the book of James, right? And when James talks to us in in, in chapter two, and he, it's, it's it's everybody knows it, you know, faith without works is dead, right? And he just really lays into it, right? It's very unpopular teaching. It probably was not very popular in James's day, but in, in verse eighteen. He says in chapter 2 of James, he says, show me your faith without works, which is kind of a taunt, like, right? You know, when the skinny kid in fifth grade says he can bench 150 pounds and you say, show me this benching of 150 pounds. You know it's not going to happen, right? And that's what James is saying. Show me your faith without deeds. Yeah. But he goes on to say, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And what really is convicting to me as I, as I meditate on this is it, it's, it's been, it's been eye-opening for me is that I think we sometimes, and I know I do, we get into this, we, we, we bifurcate faith and deeds, right? And we say, well, I have this faith and I'm a disciple, so I understand my deeds need to match my faith. So I need to work on getting my deeds, my works up to the par of my faith. But I don't think that's what James is saying. He's saying... I will show you my faith by my deeds. And what that means is when I'm sinning, it's not that my deeds aren't matching my faith. My deeds are matching my faith quite well. You know, whatever I'm doing is a reflection of my faith, whether it be good or evil. 
You can't let me get away with telling you that I'm faithful, rock solid in my belief of God when I'm not living out that faith. Don't let me fool you. Don't try to fool me. Let's live in the light and be brothers and sisters. You know, uh, a great author, a great clergyman, a great theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, was a, uh, was a, was a theologian during the rise of, 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 of Nazism in Germany. And he spoke out uh, quite boldly against Nazism as being evil. He spoke out in the name of Christ. Right? It wasn't just a mere protest. He was, he was standing on his convictions. He was ultimately imprisoned for it and, and hung uh, just a couple of days before the Allies liberated his camp, ironically. But, but he wrote this amazing book, and so many of us have read it. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. But, but he, he fleshes out this, comp, this, this idea of obedience and faith being incredibly linked together. And one thing that he repeats over and over again is that only he who believes can obey... And only he who obeys can believe. You know, these things are interlinked. It's not linear. It's not that we have to force our deeds up to match our faith. And it's, it's not that we have to get our faith right so that our deeds will flow. They, they, they relate. And I would suggest that if you're struggling with your faith, if you're struggling with your belief, try obeying. Obedience will feed your faith. Your faith will in turn obey, will, will, will in turn Feed your obedience. And, and then we can be like what, 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 what John is telling us here, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 5, where he links this idea of believing to doing good works. And it's interesting, and it's right, and it's true, and we all get that that's true. But how? How do we do this? You know, why is it that after years and years of discipleship, I still struggle? With sin, I still struggle to do good. You know, why do why do we even need to be preached to? Why do we need campaigns to get us off the couch and out into the street? You know, Jesus doesn't leave us without instruction there either. Because in verse 30 of our text today, he says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself. But him who sent me. Amen. And I think sometimes we fail to emphasize self-denial in discipleship. Jesus never failed to emphasize it. You know, Matthew 16, Mark 5, Luke 9, same basic story. If you would be my disciple, you must deny yourself. He says here in John 30, I don't seek to please myself. How about, how about us, church? You know, sometimes we, we, you know, when, we, when we teach each other and admonish each other, we go straight for the deeds. Hey, bro, stop doing that. Hey, sister, you should be doing this. You know, don't you believe in Jesus? Aren't, didn't you say Jesus is Lord? But I think we skip over the, the self-worship that's going on in between. Right? We, try to, we try to filter in Jesus to our, to our lives and, and then try to, through force of will, bring out some good works. But there's no self-denial. You think about your sin, my sin, our sin, it's all self-serving. There would be no sin without self. Right? Whether it's worry, whether it's sloth, whether it's withholding yourself from the fellowship and serving the kingdom. 
and, and, and fulfilling your role in the body. It's all about self. I learned a lot about us this past month with the door knocking. Yep. <laughs> yeah. When I first heard we were going to, you know, for those, for those of you visiting last month, we kind of said, you know, we're going to stretch ourselves. We're going to stretch our faith. We're going to go out and actually meet our neighbors faithfully. <laughs> and we're going to invite them to come to church, come study the Bible, come do, do whatever. We're, gonna, we're just going to knock on their door and introduce ourselves. And when I first heard we were going to do that, I was so fired up. No. <laughs> Out of all the same excuses you did. How can I get out of this? Do I have any business trips scheduled this month? That I, sorry, can't make it. And when I, when I gutted past that and started to engage with you, because of course we have to do that, we're doing this together. This is discipleship, you know, partners. I start hearing the same stuff from you guys. I got this, I got to do. Oh, I got that, I got to do. Oh, I'm really anxious about that. I'm not even sure that's effective. You know, blah, yada, 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 yada. But everything that I was telling myself and everything that I was hearing from you was all about self. It wasn't about Jesus. You know, I, when, I, uh, when I first became a disciple, um, there, there was this brief period where I got baptized. And, and then a few months later, my wife Deanna got baptized. So there was this, there was this desert time for me. Um, but, but Deanna, she's a great wife. She was coming to church. She was studying the Bible. She was going to Bible talking. One, one night, we, we were getting ready for midweek, and uh, we did it on Wednesdays back then, and I, I'm, I'm, you know, we have a three-year-old son, we're dealing with all that, we're tired, and, and, and Deanna asked the question, do we really have to go to midweek? And I thought, oh, I wish you hadn't asked that, because I don't have a good answer. And I don't want to go to midweek either, really, if you want to know but, but by the grace of God, the words that tumbled out of my mouth, that didn't, they went straight from somewhere, they bypassed my brain. And somehow I said, well, what would we do instead? And you know, I've, deter I, I, I've, I've determined that when it comes to serving God, it's not so much of, well, do you have to knock on the door to be a disciple? Well, that's not the question. Well, do you have to go to church regularly to be a Christian. That's not the question either. The question is, what are you going to do instead? Because nobody said to me, I can't knock on the door because I'm planning on serving the poor that day. Nobody said that. Nobody said to me, nobody ever says to me, I can't come to church because I've been sharing my life with my neighbor and they really want to study the Bible and, and Tuesday night's the only time we can do it, so I'm going to skip church. I never hear that. It's always something else. What are you doing instead? It's not what you're going to do. It's what are you going to do instead? It's all about self-denial. You know, we can have a good intellectual argument about whether you should go to church or not. And I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say. And it might be really brilliant. I mean, really. And I'm, I'm, I'd be happy to have a conversation. And I would be open to being convinced that knocking on doors is not an effective way to evangelize in the 21st century. That's not the issue, though. What you can't deny... Is that knocking on the door requires self-denial. And you cannot get... I will not listen to your argument that self-denial is not absolutely essential for discipleship. If we believe, if we say we believe in Jesus, 
We have to do the good works that, he's, that He has called us to as evidence to our belief. You know, church, we can't serve two masters. We can't serve Jesus Himself. The good works that evidence our faith will always be pushed aside by self-serving acts. You know, if we're stuck in sin, if you're stuck in sin, it's not that you're a victim of some cosmic joke where God creates you one way but then expects you to live another. You don't buy into that. The, fact, the problem is, if we're in sin, we just haven't decided who it is we want to worship yet. <clears throat> in John 15, we'll get there eventually, and we're going to read after you know, Jesus has been laying it out to his disciples, talking about who he is and why he's come and what's going to have to happen. And he's, he's washed their feet. He's telling them that he's about to go to the cross and be killed. And he encourages them to love and lay their lives down for one another the way he's done for them. And he says in, in 15 verse uh, 11, I think I marked it. In 15 verse 11, he says, I have told you this, all this stuff about how you should live. He says, I've told you this so that you, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And whatever it is you're chasing with your sin, whatever it is you're protecting as you live in the dark and withhold yourself from, from God's kingdom, whatever you're trying to get at, whatever you're trying to protect, it has no lasting value. It cannot satisfy you. Only the joy of Christ in you will satisfy you. And it cannot exist in you alongside your self-serving. You know, church, this week, let's, let's forsake self, as we've been commanded to do. And forsake the sin that serves it. <clears throat> and let's believe, both in thought and deed, in the one who perfects joy and calls us from death to life. To God be the glory. Amen.